0: Jim, thank you so much for that prayer this morning. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I would like you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 11 and verses 1 through 11. We will look at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11 and verses 1 through 11. Well, as Jim mentioned, this is an important time in the year of a church In the calendar of a church, this is Palm Sunday, and we are preparing our hearts this morning for the Easter season. And being the first Sunday of the month, we are also preparing our hearts for the Lord's Supper as we share that together in just a little bit. So I want us to look this morning at the very first Palm Sunday. And what I'm going to do this Easter season, this is what I kind of like to do, is stay in one gospel. So we're going to look at the gospel of Mark, both this morning for Palm Sunday, and then for Good Friday. Again, our service is at 6 o'clock on Friday, and then for Easter Sunday next week. We'll be, all three times, will be in the gospel of Mark. And what I want to do this morning is I want to share with you the biblical basis for Palm Sunday. Why do churches like ours all over the world emphasize and celebrate this day we call Palm Sunday? So we're going to look at this this morning. And we're going to use, of course, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. So in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, this is what we read. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Well, our first point this morning is our all-knowing Savior. Jesus sends two of his disciples on a sovereign, God-ordained, God-prepared mission. Again, in verses 1 and 2, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, Mark doesn't name them, And said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Well, this particular passage of scripture is just filled with messianic implications, with implications that this one who is here may be, might be, the Messiah. Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives are significant messianic locations. As we go to Old Testament prophecy, we often find Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives as locations for the future coming of the Messiah. And Jesus tells two disciples to go into the village in front of you, not just to any village, but I specifically want you to go into the village in front of you and you will find a colt tied. Now we know from the other three gospels and we know from Old Testament prophecy that this was the colt of a donkey. That Jesus was going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and this is extremely important prophetically. We think of Perhaps the most famous prophecy on this found in the Old Testament is that is in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now just try to imagine this in your minds. Hundreds of years before Jesus is ever born, in the prophecy of Zechariah, it says, O daughter of Zion, to you people of Israel, I want you to shout aloud, when your king comes, when your king comes, he will come to you righteous And having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He had to come on a donkey. And the fact that he comes on a donkey is so significant. Usually when kings in this era of history and even before that would come riding into a village or riding into a city, they would do so on a great stallion, a great horse. It was said that Alexander the Great would ride some of the most majestic horses into a city that were ever found or that were found in the world at that particular time of history because Alexander the Great was a great conquering king, but not so with King Jesus. Oh, he is a king. He is a king. But the donkey is a beast. Is an animal that signifies humility and lowliness and gentleness. And it's on a donkey that he comes riding just this week in Christianity Today magazine. It said this Palm Sunday don't focus on the palm branches, focus on the donkey. Well, obviously, we're focusing on the one who rode on the donkey. But the donkey, the point of the article was the donkey is significant, more significant than we may understand. When he came as the suffering servant to give his life for our sins, he came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. It says it was a colt on which no one has ever sat. Again, the Bible doesn't waste words. It had to be this way. before Because a true king in this era of history, if he had a horse or he had a donkey, no one else, no one else could ride that horse or ride that donkey but the king. So if King Jesus is to come into Jerusalem, it had to be a colt on which no one has ever sat. And in verse 3, it says, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Why are you untying this colt? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll bring it back here immediately. When you go untie this colt, I don't want them to think, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't want them to think you're stealing it. I don't want them to think you're taking it deceptively. I want you to tell them the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. He will borrow it and bring it back to you immediately. Now, the word Lord here is interesting. It's actually, when it says the Lord has need of it, it's the subject of a a good-natured scholarly debate. Is he simply saying the master has need of it, or is he saying God has need of it? R.C. Sproul, in an extensive part of his commentary, says he believes the word Lord here means sovereign king. Tell them the sovereign king has need of it and will send it back here immediately. Well, when the two disciples go on their mission, they find everything exactly as Jesus said. In verse 4, it says, And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. Remember, go to the village in front of you. So they go to the village in front of them, and they find it exactly as Jesus said. They go into this village, and what's there? A colt that's tied up at a home just like Jesus said. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? Ah, Jesus knew this could happen. So, why are you taking the colt? Are you trying to steal this colt? So they questioned the two disciples who are there. And then verse 6, And they told them what Jesus had said. Remember what Jesus said. Tell them the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they told them what Jesus had said, And they let them go. Oh, it's okay. He can have it. Let him have it. He can use it however he wants. A couple of thoughts here in verse 6. The question arises with this. Did Jesus arrange all of this ahead of time? Did he go to this village, tell them I'm going to need the donkey, and I'm going to have two of my guys come, and they're going to untie it and take it? Or, in his omniscience... Being the sovereign God of all the universe, did he sovereignly know that all of this was going to take place and just how it was going to play take place? Did he, in essence, sovereignly, divinely arrange for all of this? And I personally think it's the latter. I think Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. And I say that because when they go to untie it, Most likely the people who speak are the owners. And they said, why? Remember what they said, what are you doing? What are you doing untying the colt? Are you going to just take this colt? So evidently Jesus hadn't arranged them personally with them. But when they found out who wanted it, they let them go. I think that Jesus, though human, still fully divine, still fully God, sovereignly had arranged for every single detail leading up and through his death and resurrection. Verse 6 also reminds us of something else. It may indicate that Jesus had numerous disciples in various places. When we think of the followers of Jesus, we tend to think that there were the 12 or the 11 when Judas went away and then those women who followed him because they're the ones most often talked about but folks it is very likely that Jesus had disciples with all of his teaching in all the areas that he went he likely had disciples in all kinds of different places and these were likely his disciples wouldn't make sense if they were unbelievers but if disciples of Jesus were told the Lord The sovereign king has need of it. They were like, oh, it's okay. He can take it. He can use it for as long as he wants, for whatever purpose he wants. And then in verse 7, And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. They threw their cloaks on it so it would be comfortable for him. And then they sat on it, or excuse me, he sat on it. In specific fulfillment of prophecy, for your king will come riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. So in complete, specific fulfillment of Old Testament scripture, Jesus comes riding on a donkey. And that brings us to our second point this morning, and that is the triumphal entry, and that is what this passage is known as. And I want you to notice that two different crowds come together as Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem. There is the crowd that followed him. That would have been his disciples, maybe the women, maybe some of the others, the ones who sat him on the donkey, and they come kind of ushering him into Jerusalem. And then very significant, there was the crowd that was already at Jerusalem for their yearly Passover pilgrimage. As Jesus comes to Jerusalem, there are hundreds upon hundreds of Jewish people who have come from all over Israel to celebrate the Passover. There was a kind of messianic fervor that went along with the Passover. When they would come to celebrate Passover, not only would they bring a lamb to sacrifice for their family, but they would be reminded that God had delivered them from bondage in Egypt. And they would celebrate that, but not only would they celebrate that, but at the Passover, they would be thinking in a heightened way every year when is Messiah going to come? When is that day when our Messiah will come? And who is that Messiah? How will we know he is our Messiah? And then add to that, that there was just this buzz, this thought, this talk going throughout the great crowds about this Jesus of Nazareth. They either saw him or heard about how he fed the 5,000, which was probably more like more than 10,000 with women and children, and how he had fed them all. But even more significant, just a few days before this, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. We saw that in the Gospel of John. And so they're thinking, they're saying, could he be it? Could he be the one? But tragically, as we go through this, somehow in their study of the Old Testament, they only saw the second part of Messiah's coming and totally missed the first part. They were looking for a political conqueror Someone who was going to come and immediately rule in reign in Jerusalem and finally deliver them from their oppression to the Roman government. So, could this be Jesus? Could Jesus be the one? And so in verse 8 it says, and many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Here comes Jesus with his disciples and his followers coming into Jerusalem and the crowd just throngs to him and they throw their cloaks and the leafy branches in front of them. And what's the significance of that? That's what they did for a king. That's what they did for a great military leader when they would come riding into town. So let's say that a Roman soldier came into town having conquered an enemy, they would gather and they would throw cloaks and leafy branches in front of the horse, in front of the procession as they would come in and that's what they do for Jesus. And then in verses 9 and 10. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting. And I want you to notice that word, shouting. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. There is this fever pitch kind of emotion accompanying the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. Both crowds were shouting. Those who brought him and those who were there were all shouting. And what they shouted was correct but terribly misunderstood. What they said was true of Jesus, but they did not grasp that first, first he was coming coming as a suffering servant who would give his life for our sins. He was not coming this time as a conquering hero to set up his kingdom here on earth. But they shout, Hosanna! And you may know this, but Hosanna means save now. It can also be translated as save, pray. Some translate it to mean save us now. That they were shouting Hosanna, which means save us now, Jesus, save us now. And they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes as Messiah As ruling king, blessed is the one who comes in the name of God himself. And now notice verse 10, so significant. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Blessed is the one who has come to sit on the throne of David because that is one of the significant characteristics of the Messiah. He will sit on the throne of David and rule and reign forever. And someday Jesus will. But it was not yet. Not yet. And then they said, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, save now you who have come from God himself. Hosanna in the highest. So again, what they are shouting is true of Jesus. But oh, how they misunderstood the purpose and design of his first coming. Hold on to that. Well, Jesus' actual entry into Jerusalem is quiet and reserved. It's almost as if we go from this fever pitch in verses 9 and 10 to this almost dramatic kind of letdown to verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So when he actually gets to Jerusalem, he goes into the temple, the place of worship and the place of sacrifice. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he left Jerusalem. He went to Bethany with his disciples. Why did he go to Bethany? Well, number one, the Jewish religious leaders were hostile toward him. He couldn't stay there. Plus, the crowds misunderstood his coming. He couldn't stay in Jerusalem, so he goes to Bethany with the Twelve. And if you remember our study of the Gospel of John, because John spends the most time on it of any of the Gospel writers, this is Sunday before the Friday, before the Sunday of the Resurrection. This is Sunday, and there's much to happen in these next few days, as we saw in the upper room discourse in the Gospel of John. There's much to happen. So he goes away for prayer, for meditation, for time with his disciples. But here's what I want us to think about this morning. When Jesus doesn't immediately set himself up on the throne as a conquering hero, as a great military leader come to set up his kingdom immediately. When he doesn't do that, the great emotional fervor of the crowd diminishes into silence. The king does not ascend his throne, but he is all alone. The triumphal entry has been called historically both a tragedy and a triumph. It is a tragedy because those who welcomed Jesus to Jerusalem, as I mentioned, completely misunderstood his mission. As I said, they wanted a victorious conqueror and they thought Jesus was him. And so they quickly abandoned him. As one writer said, they did not embrace him as savior nor bow to him as king. Now, I know you know this, but I think it is important to reemphasize this every year. It shows just how fickle we are, how emotional we are in our sinful and fallen natures. The same crowd that shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Those same people in a few short days will shout again. But this time they will shout, crucify him. Crucify him. They will shout, give us Barabbas. Give us. Barabbas. So this account is a tragedy, but it is also a triumph. It is a triumph because Jesus' entry into the temple, verse 11 being more significant than we could ever realize, his entry into the temple marked the real reason and purpose of his coming, the fulfilling of his destiny. According to Isaiah chapter 50, the Messiah would set his face like a flint, to Jerusalem. He must go to Jerusalem, and Jesus has come. He has come to Jerusalem. And remember the temple. He enters the temple. The temple was the place of animal sacrifices, the temple was the heart and soul of the Passover celebration. And as Jesus walks into the temple after the triumphal entry, we are supposed to get this. The Lamb of God has arrived. The final, ultimate, all-sufficient sacrifice of God. The final Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God, John the Baptist said, who takes away the sin of the world. He has arrived in Jerusalem. You see, it was time. It was time for the suffering Savior to give his life as a ransom for many. It was time. It was time for Jesus to die and rise again. And folks, this is the biblical purpose for the celebration of Palm Sunday. This is why the church historically has emphasized and celebrated this day, this Palm Sunday, just like the first Palm Sunday. It really isn't about the palm branches. It's about the Savior who had come. The Lamb of God has arrived in Jerusalem to give his life as a sacrifice for our sins. And with that in mind, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning. Let me give you just brief instruction, especially for those of you who may be visiting with us this morning. One of our deacons will pray for both the bread and the cup, and then the deacons will come out to you with the bread and cup together. And when everyone has been served first, I will read a passage of scripture and we will eat together. Then I will read another passage of scripture and we will drink together. For those of you who are watching us by live stream, while the deacons are serving communion, we encourage you to use this as an important time of meditation and reflection. And then, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're not sure that you've ever personally invited him to be your Lord and Savior, This would be a great time to make him your Savior. But if you're not sure, it's best to let the elements pass you by. Also, for those of us who are believers, if there is something in your life this morning that isn't right, that you feel with a clear conscience you really maybe shouldn't be taking the Lord's Supper this morning, it's okay to let it pass you by. It is okay. This, most importantly, is a time of confession and self-examination as we celebrate the Lord's death and resurrection together. So at this time, we will take the Lord's Supper.